If you're in Hubtown Kids this morning, as you go, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to preemptively reveal to you your, your message for today. Your lesson is that God is Trinity. Now, I don't want any of you guys trying to teach our kids uh, about the Trinity through some sort of an egg or, or uh, water and uh, how it's in three different states. I'm just kidding. That's, but uh, I'm being passive aggressive. But why don't you let our kids teach you what, uh, what Trinity is? What does it mean that God is Trinity? I want you guys to think about that. It actually has some application to our message this morning, to our text this morning. But as they go, be thinking about the Trinity when you pray, be thinking about the fact that we pray to a triune God. We are a, a church that believes and worships a triune God. One, a God that is one God yet in, has three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a beautiful truth that we believe and hold to and confess as Christians this morning. So you turn to your, your copy of God's turn in your copy of God's word to, to Mark chapter 12. I want to remind you about the members meeting this evening and uh, I am not above enticement. I'm not above bribery. Uh, uh, I am coming for many reasons this evening. One, one reason is I love my church. Uh, another reason is I love fried chicken. And so uh, that's, that's important for me, and I'm looking forward to, to celebrating our membership and what God has called us to do as a church together uh, over some fried chicken. Also, I'm going to bribe you with this. This is the, the newest copy of the, uh, the membership directory and prayer guide. So if you're a member of Hagerstown Church, uh, your, your, your mug is in here, your, your handsome mug, and I'm going to tell you it's been a joy to just kind of thumb through this the last few days. If you're interested, hey, I want to know the, the names of the rest of the members of our church since we've merged. There's been a lot of people added in from one side or the other. And so if you're interested in learning about uh, the members that are here at Hagerstown Church, if you're interested in praying effectively and in, informed way, in an informed way, you're going to want to come because this, is, this evening because this is what you're going to get. That's one piece of information. So uh, I'm going to leave that there. And if it turns up missing... Uh, you know you know who you are. My name's on there as well. So I'm actually going to go ahead and put that back in my Bible. I can see some of you guys eyeing that. What is the most effective tool for you apart from the Bible as a member of the church? What is the most effective tool? This is a question that I want you to actually answer. The most effective tool that you can have, that, you, that, that can be made available to you aside from the Bible? Prayer? a good one I'm gonna argue the the prayer directory huh let me ask you another question what's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament oh Brett and his uh Brett had to get, he had to steal my thunder some of you might think it's Psalm 23 but no it's not Psalm 23 it's a Precious psalm as it is, but it is not the most quoted in the New Testament. Some might think, aside from Anthony's quick answer, that it's Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Old Testament there in the Psalter. Uh, but uh, there's lots to choose from. There's lots that the New Testament authors could have quoted from there in Psalm 119, but they didn't quote the most from Psalm 119. They did, in fact, quote the most, the most often from Psalm 110. Some say it's alluded to uh, 27. Uh, some say 33. It's somewhere in there. At any rate, it is easily the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, quotes from that very psalm in our text this morning. And so in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35, 
This is what the Word of God has to say. Psalm chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So, how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Would you pray with me now and ask God to bless the reading of his word again? Father, we, as we often do, pause so that we can be reminded that in and of ourselves, we are powerless to know truth, to please you, to receive the gospel. We're powerless to see Jesus unless you reveal it to us, unless you reveal him sweetly to us, we're powerless. And so we stop now and we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, through the power of your spirit who is with us now. We pray that we would learn, that we would be corrected, Father, that we would be encouraged and that we would receive the rest we would receive the comfort and the strength that we so desperately need this morning. We pray that these things would be true, Jesus, that we would receive them from you. And so we pray in your name, amen. As we begin to walk through this text, I wanna just go ahead and front load and offer you this main idea. The main idea from this text that I want you to see is this, that the true Christ is far more wonderful a Messiah than we could ever craft on our own. The true Christ is a far more wonderful Messiah than we could ever craft on our own. He is a far more wonderful Messiah. He's a far more wonderful Savior than you could ever imagine or dream of. He's a more perfect and wonderful Savior than you even thought that you needed. From this text this morning, I think we're going to see two principles. I'll make sure of it. One, that the scriptures have been inspired. The scriptures have been inspired. They've been breathed out by God. Jesus believed that, quotes the scriptures, and even says as much. And so one principle that we'll see is that the, that the scriptures have been inspired. And second, we'll see that the Son of God has become incarnate. And so two principles, inspired scriptures to incarnate Son. Oftentimes, I'll try to phrase our main idea or our main points in some sort of an action step, something for you to do. This morning, I think it would be so helpful for us just to gaze upon the beauty of Christ and the joy that God has given to us in our Messiah. And so would you do that? Would you just think, would you just, in a spirit of worship, ask God to show you more clearly Jesus this morning? Just rest in that. Verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, you'll know that this is the final week of Jesus' life. Not long ago, just a few days 
In the life of Jesus, in a few months in the life of our church, Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. He was hailed as the Messiah. This was the beginning of his Passion Week. And today, as Jesus teaches there in the temple, the court of the Gentiles, it is Wednesday. In just a few days, he'll be arrested, he'll be executed, and finally, he will resurrect. And last week, Jesus had faced the last of the entourage. He'd been questioned by all the religious leaders. And now today, they stop asking him questions, and he, in turn, goes on the offensive. He begins to ask the questions, but you'll know something about Jesus. You'll see this, that they ask Jesus, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they try to ask Jesus questions to trip him up, to slow him down, to bring shame upon him to cause his fame to falter. And yet Jesus asks questions to invite them to lay their arms down. Jesus asks questions in order to soften hearts and to reveal their own sin and false ideas. He asks the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ The Messiah is the son of David. Well, that word Christ, it's a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. And this Greek word, it's actually the translation of a Hebrew word uh, transliterated into the English word Messiah. And so Christ and Messiah, they're really the equivalent. And they refer to this idea that there's a future king of Israel promised that will one day reign over the throne, reign on the throne of David, over David's kingdom. Furthermore, this Messiah, he will sit on the throne forever, and he would actually be David's son in the sense that he'll be a descendant of David. He'll be of the lineage of David. And so to call him the son of David is a Hebraism, right? It's a way that the Hebrews would say he's a descendant of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God, Yahweh, speaking to David, says this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a promise that God gave to David. Somebody from your loins, one of your descendants, one of your sons will reign forever. He'll build a house and he'll reign forever. We quickly apply this to Solomon and yet Solomon did not reign forever. And so this promise we know is not only applied to Solomon, but that is applied to the Christ, the Messiah. Furthermore, Psalm 89, David speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, you have said... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Two blind men call out to Jesus. What do they call out? Have mercy on us, son of David. They call out to the Messiah the descendant of David, to save them, to have mercy on them. It's interesting. Matthew wants us to know desperately that Jesus is of David's line. 
And he traces down Jesus' earthly father through Joseph all the way back to the line of David. David, his descendant, was Joseph. And in a sense, Jesus. Also, Luke is just as thorough and lets us know through the line of Mary, Jesus' real mother, his physical mother. He proves to us that David's son through Mary is Jesus. David, of course, the most illustrious king. He's a shepherd, a poet, a warrior, a brilliant administrator. He extends the boundaries of the nation of Israel. He's the greatest military leader that they had ever seen. Still studied today. David has the finest public works program of any king, from what I understand. At least the kings that ruled over Israel. And so to be thought of as a king in the line of David is a high honor. It's a high watermark, the golden age of Israel. And so when God says, I'm going to put somebody on your throne, one of your descendants, when he speaks to the Jews and he reminds them of this promise that the Messiah will be of the line of David, there is this reminiscent idea that he will be a great political leader. He will be a victorious warrior in the likeness of David. Jesus expects the answer. It's easy on its face. Why do the scribes say that Jesus is the son of David? Well, they say that because he really was the son of David. They say that because the Messiah truly would be of the descendants or of the the lineage of David. But Jesus is asking them for a reason. It's true that the scriptures teach that the Messiah would be the son of David and therefore David-like, but incidentally, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to reveal. They wanted a political leader. They wanted David. They wanted somebody to cut off the head of their enemy. They wanted somebody to lead them politically into freedom. But the scriptures tell us more about the Messiah. The scriptures tell us more about the coming son of God. They tell us that he was more than just David's son. Look at verse 36 there in chapter 12. The scriptures tell us that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. And what did he declare? We'll look at in just a minute. But before we go on any further, I want to pause here just for a moment and point out a key principle that we believe as Christians That Jesus believed that the Psalms were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We can't pass over that. Jesus says, he quotes, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. If you look at Psalm 110, David does not determine for us. He doesn't tell us clearly that he's speaking in the Holy Spirit. But Jesus lets us know that that is exactly what's happening. And so one principle that we can pick up from this text this morning that we can rest under and find joy in is that the the scriptures that we have today are inspired by the holy God that we serve. Look at the title. If If you have your Bible open to Psalm 110, you'll probably see at the top of that, it says, A Psalm of David. David wrote it. But Jesus wants to remind us that the Spirit inspired it the spirit breathed it out peter wrote that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human uh, will but he says this but men 
like David, in parentheses, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 and following. Peter said, no prophecy, and Psalm 110 is indeed a messianic prophecy, no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men like David, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. It's not a Christian twisting of Jewish thought. It's not something anachronistically changed that would serve us in our theology in a convenient way. This is something that the Jews of the first century believed. This is something that the Jews from day one have believed. That God would speak to his people. Not only do Jews believe this, but Peter believed it, who happened to be a first century Jew, also a Christian. Furthermore, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, believed that the Word of God was the Bible and that the Psalms were inspired by God. And so Peter believed it, the Jews believed it, Jesus believed it, and so we believe it. The Scriptures are not governed by our powers of reason or logic or even our desire that they would create some sort of outlandish interpretation. The Scriptures are inspired by the very Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. They are given to us for a reason, for a purpose. As Timothy is reminded by Paul there in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, all scripture is breathed out, it's exhaled, it's inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scribes had gone to the scriptures. The scriptures that Paul says were able to make Timothy wise unto salvation. They went to that scripture and they didn't come away with the same idea that Paul and Timothy and even Jesus and even David came away with. You see, they didn't go wanting to hear. They went to scripture wanting to speak. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone to God and asked him to speak, but then you began to speak? Have you gone to God with the answer and asked him to give the question? You knew what you needed. You had your ideas of what you were going to go after, and you asked God to bless it in some sense. Essentially, this is what has happened to the scribes in their particular context. They knew what they needed, at least they thought they did, they knew what they wanted. And so they came to the text, they came to the scripture, they came to the teachings about Messiah, and they highlighted that which they wanted to hear, and they ignored or totally missed that which wasn't important to them. Brothers and sisters, this principle cannot be understated that the word of God is inspired, holy scripture. Jesus and the scribes knew that, Jesus, or that the Messiah would be the son of David. How'd they know this? From those inspired scriptures. Jesus now reminds them of another scripture there in Psalm 110. It's very important. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, quoting David, 
Sit at my right hand, quoting God, until I put your enemies under your feet. David David is speaking and he recounts that the Lord says to his Lord. And so this is a bit confusing, but I want you to think of it this way. There's three persons here in this text. In that first verse of Psalm 110, there's David, there's the Lord, and then there's my Lord. Well, I've already covered David. We know who he is. He's the, 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 the great king of Israel. But who is the first Lord mentioned there? The Lord. This is the proper name for God in the Old Testament. Perhaps you flipped back in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 110, and if you do, you'll notice that that first, the Lord. What does it say there? How is it spelled? Well, it's L-O-R-D, but in most cases, it's L-O-R-D capital letters. What does that stand for? That is is the, the, the indication that it is the proper name for God. It's, it's the tetragrammaton. It's the, the Lord, the Yahweh, Jehovah. It is his name. I am that I am. The Lord, Yahweh. And so David says, Yahweh said to my Lord, who is this second Lord? Who is my Lord? What's well, a transliteration of the Greek word kurios, which means master. One who has power over another. And it's actually the title in the Old Testament for God. And so you might see Lord God. Well, that's Lord, Lord. That's Yahweh who is God. Yahweh, my master. And so who is this second Lord? Who is David's master? David's affirming that the Lord God had spoken to one, to someone else who had authority and dominion over himself. That he had dominion and authority over King David. Who was that person? Who is that person that, G, that, that David is referencing? David here, king of all Israel. Who had authority over him? Was it some Pharaoh? Was it some Babylonian king that would have authority over King David of Israel? Who had authority over him? We have, we've already established that this is a messianic psalm. It's about the coming Messiah. And so David is describing one of his descendants as being greater than him, that he is a servant of, that he has a master that he is under. In Jewish categories, this would have to be God. It would have to be God. And so it seems that God is speaking to someone else who carries the title for God. Again, Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm, it's a prophetic psalm, and David was saying by the Holy Spirit that when the Messiah had finished his labor in this world, that he would be exalted to heaven, that he would be enthroned at the right hand of God, he would sit down. Who does that sound like? Who does that sound? It sounds like Jesus. For 2,000 years, Christians have held to the Apostles' Creed. What does it affirm? That Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. This was the early church's confession and belief toward Jesus. The importance of his current, present reign that he has established here in this life and in the one to come. Scripture taught that Messiah was the son of David, but it also taught that He was also David's Lord, that Messiah was David's Lord, and that he was the second person in the Trinity. And here's our second principle, the principle of the incarnate Son. The principle of the incarnate Son. 
Do you find rest in the fact that we have inspired scriptures? These inspired scriptures teach us. They herald the incarnate Son. The doctrine of the incarnation teaches that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son, has from eternity past been God, equal to the Father in nature, support, subordinate to the Father in person. To be incarnate is to take on flesh, not to be reincarnate, but to be incarnate is to take on a human body, to become a human, which is exactly what Jesus did. He didn't lose any of his deity, but he gained humanity. And for eternity past, he existed as the Son of God, and now for eternity future, he will exist as the Son of God incarnate. And if Messiah really were God incarnate, and he is, well, what would we expect him to be like? What would we expect God incarnate to be like? Well, we would expect that if God took on flesh and dwelt among us, that he would be sinless. That for all of the days that he walked this earth, that he would live without sin, having never missed the mark of God, having kept the law of God perfectly. Is this not what we see in Jesus? Look at his life and we see that he is sinless. And in contrast, we see our own sinfulness, our inability to please God, and yet we glory in the fact that he could please God. He was sinless. We also would expect that Messiah, God incarnate, that he would be powerful in his teaching. This is not what we see in Jesus. People, as they hear Jesus speaking, say, we've never heard anybody speak like this. He has an authority that we've never experienced before. This is exactly what we see in Jesus. Or we would also expect a supernatural set of actions just overflowing out of this man's life. Is this not, again, what we see with Jesus? He's sinless. He's powerful in his teaching, but he's powerful in his actions as well. Even the wind and the waves obey God. Even the wind and the waves obey the Messiah, God incarnate. Furthermore, we would expect that if God were to take on flesh, that this human, this deity robed in flesh would display the very attributes of God. That nothing would be taken away from his person, from his character, from his deity, but that there would be added to him this humanity. And even in that humanity, the attributes of God would be on display fully. Is this not, again, what we see in the person, Jesus Christ? I don't want you to forget the events that have led up to this point. Jesus recently has come into Jerusalem by a parade of people hailing him as a good person. Or is it something different? What are they hailing Jesus to be? They're hailing him. They're calling him Messiah. They're calling him Son of David. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Son of David. Scribes, you're right. I am the Son of David, but I am much more than the Son of David. I am also the Son of God. Jesus is indirectly but clearly saying that he is the eternal incarnate son verse 37 david himself calls him lord so how is he his son jesus said to the scholars jesus said to those who were gathered around what do you think about this 
What do you think about the fact that you've leaned in so heavily to the fact that he is a political leader and that he'll rescue you from those who oppress you? What do you think about the fact that he's also the incarnate son of God? This sort of question really is rhetorical in nature. It's meant to get you thinking. It's meant to get them thinking. You see, they wanted a political leader. They wanted somebody to rescue them from Rome. Even now, Mark is writing this letter, this account to the Christians that are there in Rome. Maybe they're wanting freedom as well from their oppression. They're wanting somebody who would deliver them. They think that's what they need. Somebody who would put out the fires of persecution. And yet, right there in their midst, these scribes had something far better than they could ever imagine. They had something far greater than they could ever dream. Friends, they had God in the flesh. And they wanted Jesus to to fill their desires, to fill their needs, to meet them. They thought they needed this. They thought they needed that. They thought they needed what they thought they needed. And yet Jesus knew exactly what they needed. And he was everything that they needed and more than they could ever imagine right there in front of them. And so friends, I'm gonna ask you, Don't be deceived by false teachers. Don't even be deceived by your own heart. Look to the scriptures. What do they say about the Messiah? What do they say about the Messiah? That it is God, that he is God in the flesh. He is God incarnate. The true Christ is far more wonderful a Messiah than we could ever craft on our own. As described in the scriptures, he is more glorious, he is more beautiful than you could ever conjure on your own. As Jesus is speaking to this crowd, and he points to them indirectly to them, knowing that Jesus is not just David's son, he is far more than David's son, he is David's Lord. As they see that it says, as they hear that it says, and the great throng heard him gladly. If you were to translate that to maybe uh, a little bit more common language, it's basically saying that they enjoyed hearing Jesus speak. They enjoyed that. Maybe they were entertained. Maybe they liked to see Jesus kind of like kindly but passive-aggressively take a shot at the scribes. Maybe they kind of found some pleasure in that. Or maybe they really thought, hey, I never saw that before. It's in plain sight. We love that psalm. We hear it all the time. And yet I hadn't thought about that. David having a Lord. Man. At any rate, we don't hear of any conversions. We don't hear of anybody turning from their sin just as Jesus had said there at the beginning. This is the last thing that he offers in his public teaching ministry. That David had a Lord. Indirectly saying, hey, I am David's Lord. I am the Messiah. I'm the eternal incarnate Son of God. And yet they've just had a good time. Furthermore, Judas, right after this, he leaves Jesus and goes and betrays him. Seems as though he missed it maybe as well. What's interesting is that Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, records that Peter, Simon Peter, does not miss this truth. 
It's interesting, long before Jesus' teaching on Psalm 110, Peter already knew the answer. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to just flip one book over to Matthew chapter 16. Again, we'll look at verse 16. Matthew 16, verse 16, there Jesus is with his disciples. They're in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked Peter, who do, who do men say that I am? He asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say this, some say that. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Peter says, you're the, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Furthermore, you're the son of the living God. You're the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But my Father has revealed this. I want to ask you this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Have you leaned into what the Scriptures truly reveal about Jesus? comprehensively or have you chosen one thing about Jesus and you just lean into that the Bible says that Jesus is love I really like that part or maybe you've leaned in this idea that that Jesus is the judge that will come and judge the world maybe some other aspect of Jesus's being or attributes one of his attributes you've leaned into that heavily who do you say that Jesus is What is Jesus' purpose? The Word of God says that He is David's Son and He is David's Lord. As we transition into communion, as I think about this idea that God has revealed in His Word the truths about His incarnate Son, I think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 and following. But He, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward till his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus, having uh, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. What a glorious truth that our Messiah, not just the Son of David, but the Son of God, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he offers one sacrifice, his own life, broke his own had his own body broken and his own blood shed. It was was satisfaction for one sacrifice for all time. And when he was complete, when he was done, upon his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And we who were his enemies now bow before King Jesus. And those who will not bow will one day bow. And he waits until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. What a glorious day that we await. Brothers and sisters, one of the biblical ways that we joyfully submit to King Jesus, to our Messiah, 
is by observing the Messiah's Supper, by, we, by observing the Lord's Supper. And so as we prepare to draw near to the Lord's table, to celebrate the communion of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to remember that our Lord instituted this ordinance for a couple reasons. I want to highlight two of them. One, as a seal of his promise to us and a renewal of our obedience to him. This morning as we take communion, we are reminded of his promises to us that one day he will return for us and that even now he is present with us. Communion serves as a pledge of his coming again. He said that we're to continue to take communion. We're to continue to come to this table until he comes, until he returns. In our statement of faith, we say this, that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. So that's what today's about. Today's about being reminded of the incarnate Son of God who took on flesh and whose flesh was broken and blood poured out for us the apostle paul under inspiration also of the holy spirit says in first corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 and following for i received from the lord what i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person first examine himself, then go and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The sacred time at the Lord's table is for believers. But it's not just for believers, it's for believers who have rested all their hope on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe that Jesus truly lived. We believe that he truly died and that he really did rise from the dead and that even now he sits at the right hand of God the Father. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, was raised for our justification. We believe that he'll return again in the glory of the Lord of lords and King of kings. So if you're here this morning and you don't yet believe that, I would ask that you refrain partaking of the bread and the cup until you come to faith true faith saving faith in jesus christ and at that time be able to take of the supper in a worthy manner full of belief in addition to that i encourage you if you are a baptized member of a local church to examine your heart so that you can partake of this supper in a worthy manner 
For those of you who are visiting with us, we're so glad that you are here. If you're a member of a like-minded church, in good standing with them, they preach the gospel, we welcome you to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. And if your church doesn't practice formal membership, if your name's not written in a formal book like we have this morning, that's still fine if you're a member of that church. But we would ask if your heart is not in the right place, if you're not committed to Christ's church, to please refrain from taking of the Lord's Supper until you can freely and rightly partake, not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy and what he's doing in your life. And so with that behind us, I want to encourage you now to take some time and reflect on the scripture that we've looked at. Additionally, I would encourage you to take some time to, to reflect on your own life on Christ's righteousness that was provided for you, and on your own sin that he died to forgive. So would you think of the gravity of your own sin? Would you think about the, the weight of Christ's glorious sacrifice? And as you do, prayerfully ask the Lord to bring you to a place of greater understanding and appreciation of that work which he has done for you. Church, would you spend some time in reflection and prayer?